I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Recorded in front of a live audience from the Jack London Review in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire! With writer Dina Nyeri, author Adam Mansbach, and comedian Shane Brendan. With music from LaRonda Steele and our fabulous house band... I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Wow. Thank you, Elena Passarello. And thank you, everybody, for coming out to the Jack London Review in Portland, Oregon. The theme uh, for this week's show is No Place Like Home. We're going to explore that through a, a bunch of different guests throughout the hour. Uh, my daughter is 25, and I went and visited her at her new home. She lives in this apartment in Seattle. And we were checking it out, and we snuck up on the roof of the apartment building because I am a responsible adult parent. <laughs> and as we were standing on the roof, I realized that we were two apartment buildings over from the apartment that I lived in when I was the age that she is now. Aww. With her, like, half of the time. That was where our life was. That was where our home was. When you were 25. When I was 25 and had an 8-year-old child. Aww. We lived in this apartment that is two buildings down from where my daughter now lives. That's amazing. Uh, it's amazing she survived because I was <laughs> not a very qualified parent. <laughs> Including the total inability to cook any food at all. My big... <laughs> Like, Friday night, we're going to really do it up. Meal that I would cook was, like, we called it noodles and sauce. It was a box of those noodles that you throw into a pot, and there's, like, a bag of powder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, like, 90% MSG and 10% um, sodium. You throw that in. Uh, The the thing that went with that would be uh, I'd buy one of those tubes of biscuits. Yeah. That are like kind of fun to open. It's yeah. like a little like Fourth of July explosion. It's like a little, little firecracker in your house. Exactly. Sometimes I would make broccoli so that we wouldn't get gout. Yeah. Because <laughs> everything else in that meal is a nightmare. It's probably like eight thousand calories per serving. <laughs> Just that I probably stunted her growth with what was in that powder packet. But this was our big thing on Friday night, and so we would do that. And it was kind of our deal. And then ten years later or so, I moved to New York. And my daughter comes out to visit me, and I'm actually moving into an apartment in Brooklyn. Okay. And she's a teenager at this point, and you know how it is, teenagerdom. It's just, even with the best of parent-child relationships, it can be complicated. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so we're navigating that, and the apartment, nothing is unpacked. It's just like boxes. And we get hungry after schlepping all this stuff up into this walk-up in Brooklyn, and I'm like, what should we eat? And she goes... Noodles and sauce. (laughs) So we go on like a three-hour journey. We go to every bodega in Brooklyn trying to find this particular brand. Right. And we finally found it. And we brought it back and we got those weird biscuits. And we made the whole thing. We pulled two cardboard boxes together and we just made like that was our little dinner table. And we sat there. That was like one of the top five meals of my entire life. 
My feeling is, is like this idea of being home, it can kind of sneak up on you because it isn't about a physical location, right? Right. It's about the people you're with or how you're feeling in that moment. It can kind of come out of nowhere. What is for you an indication to yourself like, ah, I'm home? Oh, if I'm wearing uh, elastic waistband pants. <laughs> it's not as sweet as yours, I guess, but that's when I really know that I'm home because like... Uh, like, if it has a button or a zipper, a belt, or a Sansa belt, like, there's no... I do not wear those at home. Like, and I think when I was in my 20s, I would, like, come home from work and, you know, have a beer and feed the cats all in my work clothes. And then in my 30s, I would maybe, like, about 30 minutes into coming home, I would change into my stretchy pants. But now that I'm in my 40s, the minute I walk through the door... I'm already sort of like, I like on the stairs, the pants just sort of like lay on the stairs as I'm going up them, like, like they, and then I'm in the stretchy pants within like five seconds. And then I know I'm home. <sighs> I feel like that kind of stuff starts to happen the older you get. Like I have, oh, yeah. I find myself Mr. Rogersing. Like I'll come home and take <laughs> off a jacket and then put on a slightly less thick jacket. <laughs> we have somebody just off stage who's thought a lot about what home means. As a child, her family escaped religious persecution in Iran, living as refugees in Dubai and Italy, and eventually making it to Oklahoma. Her book, The Ungrateful Refugee, explores her life and the lives of other displaced people. Please welcome Dina Nyeri to Livewire. Dina, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, this is an amazing book, and congratulations on uh, the awards it's been nominated for and the response. It's a remarkable piece of writing. It starts off talking about your life as a refugee. You were born in Iran. Uh, when did your family leave, and, and why, under what circumstances did they have to leave Iran? I was born right when the revolution happened, and we lived there for up until when I was eight. Um, so we were there all through the Iran-Iraq War. And then my mother decides to convert to Christianity sometime when I'm six, you know? So we were Muslim, everybody was Muslim, and um, we were kind of getting along, and then she converted. But she didn't just convert, she started to just like proselytize like mad. She had this huge cross hanging in her, you know, like car window, and then she had like tracts in the back of her seat and just basically advertising her apostasy to everyone. So of course then the moral police came and then she got arrested a bunch of times and <laughs> and then yeah and then they asked her to become a spy for the underground church against the underground church which she was a part of so then we escaped so we became undocumented and we lived for a while in Dubai trying to get refugee status and then UNHCR you know gave us that status and took us to a refugee camp in Italy outside of Rome did you realize what was actually happening to you as a kid, as a refugee? Like, was it sinking in, or was it just sort of a fun adventure? Yeah, actually, you know, my mom did a lot of the work of making it an adventure for us because we knew what was going on. And in fact, when my mother was getting arrested in Iran, I, she told me everything. And I think because she wanted to create this, you know... I guess the grandness of it, that this was something that we would get out of and that we would live on. This was God's plan for us. And so it actually, she used it to make me feel special, which now I think back and I'm like, wow, she did this huge favor for my psyche. Mm -hmm. You know, even as we were living through this dangerous thing, she made us feel like heroes. Um, you ended up in Oklahoma and this sort of weird thing happened, which was like your family became these like celebrities within this evangelical Christian circuit. <laughs> like telling your story, that must have been such culture shock to go from a dilapidated uh, hotel in, in Italy to Edmond, Oklahoma. And all of a sudden, everyone's like really into this narrative about your family and being Christian and these miracles and yeah. stuff that's happened. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, one thing about being in the refugee camp in Italy is that we were all in it together and we were all in it for like all the small details and the stories. And we, you know, we loved each other's stories. And then when I get to um, Oklahoma and everyone's just interested in the big drama of the escape and also how it was all just about Jesus and we were saved by America. And nobody really asked about the details of our life. But my mom went on this little circuit like from churches and things and she would just tell the story again and again and around that time um, you know there had been some really melodramatic movies about Iran there was not without my daughter right. which by the way I will never forgive Sally Field for that ever no matter what other thing she does in her life that's it for me and Sally Field like <laughs> 
just like not without my daughter is horrifying. But anyway, then there was also this other movie that they were all watching called China Cry, you know, which was mm-hmm. another melodramatic escape from China. So they kind of wanted that sort of story where there was really no color or nuance to your previous life. Um, you were just all about this miraculous escape. And, and my mother gave it to them because she was very faithful. And that's part of also what comes out in the book, Dina, which is that like there's this weird thing where people seem to over or underestimate mm-hmm. what your life was like in Iran. Yes. Like people think that just like you're so blessed to be here in Edmond, Oklahoma, <laughs> yes, like the greatest place on earth. And you're like, I had a swimming pool at my old house. Yeah. Like your life in Iran on a lot of levels was kind of wonderful, right? Yeah. No, it was on most levels. I mean, the only problem was the fact that the government wanted to kill us. Like, that was... That will put a real kink in your experience. It does. It does. You know, but we were, you know, my parents were doctors, and we had this, there was this village my father was from about an hour away. We would go there on the weekends, and it was like going back 200 years, you know, old cavern of a kitchen with my grandmother and her, like, big, you know, tanur oven and, you know, making food out of orchards for 20 people. And, and, you know, we had... We had this lovely, lovely home, um, and it had this glass enclosure in the middle with like a tree going through it, you know, and all of these things. And then, of course, we lost it all, and we were in refugee camps for a while, and a part of me thought we would gain all that back, but in Edmond, we were in this... um, you know, terrible apartment complex with like oil slick puddles and like children idling around, you know, with nobody inside. And and it didn't feel better. It didn't feel like I should have to claim this as a better life. And and yet that's the narrative that everybody wanted. There was this uh, great moment in the book where you get to Oklahoma and they tell you, we are going to take you for the best sweetest American treat of all time. And you've had, like, good treats in your life at this point. Like, you're comparing it in the book, like, ooh, what's it going to be like? Like, is it going to be, like, baklava and creme caramel and all of that stuff? And what was it? It was a blue slushie. (laughs) (laughs) That seems like a real letdown after the buildup of you're going to have the greatest sweetest treat that this country has to offer. Yeah, first of all, I was shocked that it was blue. And my little brother, you know, he was seven and I was ten, and we just kind of held on to this, and we're whispering in Farsi to each other, and he's like, just drink it. Just drink it and tell them it's good. And so we did, and we're like, yeah. <laughs> was that your first and last blue slushie? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. never again. But it was just so shocking, because, I mean, it was this trying to be ice cream. I, I, I didn't really understand. <laughs> Uh, I don't think that people born in America understand it. It just We just take it as a given for some reason. Um, when we come back, Dina, I want to talk more about the substance of the book where you talk to other displaced people and you got their stories. Because, I mean, this is something that really, as you write in the book, defined your life for a long time. And the stuff that's in this book is so relevant to the current state of affairs in America and what we're trying to do at a federal level for displaced people or against displaced people. So I want to get into that when we come back. The book is The Ungrateful Refugee. We're talking to Dina Nyeri. This is Livewire Radio. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Hey, have you subscribed to the Livewire newsletter yet? Every week we share live show dates there as well as peeks from behind the scenes at each episode. The newsletter is also a great way to be part of our engaged community of listeners. You can discover acclaimed authors and thinkers, hilarious stand-up comedy, and of course, live musical acts. You can subscribe today by clicking on Stay Informed over at LiveWireRadio.org. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. This week we're at the Jack London Review in Portland, Oregon. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello. We're talking to Dina Nyeri, who is the author of The Ungrateful Refugee, What Immigrants Never Tell You. It's one of the elements of this is book is the experience that you had as, as a refugee, but also the experience of other people. How did you find the other people that you, that you write about in this book? Like, where do you even go? Well, you know, I started off with this determination to go back to a refugee camp. You know, I hadn't been back to one since I lived there, and it had been 30 years, and I felt ready. I had been so afraid before. And I knew, you know, everything that was going on in Greece, and and I found a charity called Refugee Support, whose, you know, founder agreed to take me. This was a wonderful charity, which basically, you know, set up grocery stores in refugee camps so that people could receive the aid that that was donated with dignity, you know, shopping as if it was a real grocery store, not being thrown things from the back of a truck, as, you know, you've seen in a lot of these places. So I volunteered with them as one of the grocery store workers, but they gave me 
you know, lists of everyone in the camp who spoke Farsi, who was from Iran or Afghanistan. And I would go walking through rows and rows of ISO boxes, these big shipping crates that they live in. And I would just knock on doors and somebody would open the door and I would say hello in Farsi. They would invite me in and we would always sit for hours. Nobody ever turned me away. What do you think is one of the bigger misconceptions out there about people who are refugees or who are displaced or are trying to come to somewhere like, say, America? There are several. I mean, first, about themselves, the biggest thing is that they're so often disbelieved. You know, there's this, you know, stigma of dishonesty attached to them just because of the fact that they're displaced. You know, you really have to question that. Why is there such a culture of disbelief when these are people to whom something from the outside happened and they were all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds? Um, you know, and then, of course, there's all the issues around dignity and shame that are about the experience. I was so fascinated by the sections in the book that talked about just basic storytelling across cultures and how that can be, I think you said cultural barrier, how that can be a cultural barrier. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, storytelling is cultural. I mean, we think there's one way to move people or one way to be um, compelling, but that's not true. People think, you know, they have different standards. And, um, you know, one example that I came across is that when I was traveling to the Netherlands to talk to um, asylum lawyers, one of them said to me, every one of the biggest challenges with Iranian asylum seekers is the way they tell stories because they don't start at the beginning of the story and they don't start at the moment they were born. They start at the beginning of the universe. (laughs) And this is completely true. I mean, and then I thought about that for a minute. I'm like, wait a minute. That is how I learned to tell stories. There is a rhyme we all say at the beginning of every story, and it's the beginning of the universe rhyme. So, of course, like somebody... Can you say that for us? In Farsi? Yeah. Which means there was one, there wasn't one, except for God, there was no one. That's great. And that's like the story of like, how'd your afternoon go? It starts there. (laughs) Yes, and they're like, well, the world began in such wondrous place. Whereas in like Western storytelling, you'd say once upon a time. So this time we start now, not like we got to go all the way back. And also all of our Western stories, like when I was in a fiction writing workshop here in the U.S., they taught us you start in the middle of the action and you end when it all comes around again. Right. And that's that's good storytelling for us. But it's not for an Iranian, you know. Like Iranians, for example, by the way, have a habit of ruining movie endings for each other because to them, the surprise doesn't matter. That's not the point. So they'll say, oh, yeah, that movie where everybody drowned. And you're like, what? <laughs> I'm like, well, that's not the point. You'll, you need to watch it for the themes. Uh, this is Livewire Radio. Our theme this week is No Place Like Home. We're talking to Dina Nairi. Uh, her book is The Ungrateful Refugee. Uh, what does it do to somebody kind of on an emotional and psychological level to be displaced. I think one of the issues is that people assume that if somebody gets to the U.S. or gets to a European country, well, now they're out of danger. They should be basically fine. But as we learn in your book, I mean, it has a profound impact on somebody and really their whole life. You know, one of the things that I wanted people to understand from this book is how much goes unsaid because of shame and and loss of dignity and how much dignity leakage there is along the way. Because, you know, you have, you start off in your own home and you have all of this respect and you have your profession that you've built all of your life and your identity. And then you spend this amount of time being forced to wait, right? And being not allowed to work, not allowed to put your kids kids in school, you become shabbier, you become more broken, you become more desperate, you exhibit a certain hysteria, which not only makes your story sound false, but it makes you just seem, you know, just less of a person with pride. And then you arrive and they tell you, well, this is home, now you can start over, Um, but you're not the same person anymore. Now you have to also transform yourself to this new culture and to this new country. And I think there's just a lot of shame upon shame um, that, that, that changes you a little bit, um, that makes you see yourself differently. And it takes many, many, many years of acceptance and love and friendship and welcome to say to yourself, you know what, I am okay as who I am. This did not happen because of some fault of mine. You've done a lot in your life. You've written books, you went to Harvard. Have you been able to move past your trauma of being displaced? Like, have, if anybody should theoretically have worked through it, it's you. You've done everything. 
Do you still feel the effects of it? Um, well, absolutely. I mean, it's part of my identity. I mean, look at everything that I write. I keep writing about it. I keep returning to it. And there have been moments where I thought, you know what? I am American. I'm done with that. Um, and suddenly something will happen and it will throw me back into that old identity. You know. Um, so, for example, visiting the camps for me was such a just yanking back into my own camp days where I just the feeling of waiting and displacement. I mean, every night I was up all, of, all night you know, before I would go visit more people and just worrying about things like what if I wake up and somebody drags me and throws me back in, you know, in the back of a van and takes me to Iran. I mean, these absurd fears just kind of follow me because I was faced with that situation. But for the most part, I think enough time has passed that I can, you know, look at it with some perspective and look at it with a little bit of artistry, you know, and, and also look at it with some compassion um, for what a lot of refugees and immigrants will do to themselves, you know, which is another reason I wrote the book, because we do kind of help stamp ourselves into the ground in many ways because we're so desperate to be remade, you know. I mean, if you were able to sit down with, uh, like, a certain politician in Washington, D.C., um, and just sort of try to express what it is that a lot of people in the federal government seem to be missing about the plight of displaced people, what would you say? You know, I, I would say that there are things that we owe to the world because of what the world has given us. You know, we are all beneficiaries of an accident of birth, you know, or the victims of an accident of birth. And we don't deserve anything that we have, whether it be good or bad. And, you know, I think the, the notion that we are entitled to the things we're born with is one of the most dangerous, most toxic things. And I think people have internalized it. And I think for that reason, we have regressed from 30 years ago. 30 years ago, when I was a refugee, all of the people around me, even if they didn't want us there, understood America's duty to the world because of the fact that we consume most of the resources, that we have taken so much from the rest of the world, and because we have these ideals. What happened to that? I think what happened to that is that we taught a generation of children that they deserve everything they have, including the guy at the White House. You know, Dina Nyeri, everybody, right here on Livewire. The book is The Ungrateful Refugee. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. Hey, it's Luke. Do not go anywhere because coming up, we have some parenting insights from writer Adam Mansback. I only begin to really bond deeply with my children once they are old enough to make me laugh. Like, my two-and-a-half-year-old is hilarious. My 11-year-old is one of the funniest people I know. My 10-month-old, not so much. All that and more is coming up in just a few here on Livewire. This is Livewire Radio from PRI this week. We're coming to you from the Jack London Review in Portland. We're talking about no place like home. Our next guest is a comedian who started off telling jokes as a combat medic in Afghanistan. Since then, he's moved from San Diego to L.A. to Portland. He finished in the top three of Portland's Funniest Person contest. He was named an undisputable genius of comedy by the Portland Mercury. Please welcome Shane Brendan to Livewire. Thank you for having me here. This is a, you know, I'm a stand-up comedian. This is my job, and stand-up's probably the best job I've ever had, you know. Um, I've had a lot of crappy jobs. Like, I used to work at Trader Joe's, because when you're a military veteran with a fine arts degree, the world is your oyster. That's, yeah, found that out the hard way. Ten years, ten years I did in the military, a lot of deployments, a lot of combat tours, a lot of time away from my family, a very stressful, stressful job. And somehow, some way, Trader Joe's sucks so much harder than all that. I don't, I don't understand. 
I don't understand it. Who would have thought that going from wearing camo to Hawaiian print would have been the most traumatic thing that was to happen in my career, you know? <laughs> I have a master's degree in creative writing. That's the end of that joke. <laughs> It's the saddest and shortest joke I've ever written. The irony of it is, is that the setup to that joke took eight years and $67,000. Punchline's just gonna last the rest of my life, you know? I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee. I'm from the South. I got mixed feelings about being where I'm from. I'm a proud Southerner. I love where I grew up. But I got picked on a lot back in high school. And a lot of you are thinking, no, there's no way. You're like the coolest guy I've seen all day. That is correct. But it just took me 36 years to finally become the coolest teenager I always wanted to be. That's what that is. But I got picked on a lot in high schools because I was an overachiever. I was in all honors classes. I was the editor of my school newspaper. And I started a magic club for all the black students called Afrikadabrican Americans. <laughs> Our motto was inclusion in illusion. It was dope. It was dope. It was dope. Still can't figure out why no one joined my club. Very weird. Very weird. Me and my wife are celebrating our eight-year anniversary. Yeah, eight years. Yeah, so you know, we're halfway there. But no, we're up. I love her to death. I'm very fortunate to have this woman in my life because when we met, I was a young, broke, struggling comedian and a single father. So it was a tough sell for me, right? I felt like a real estate agent trying to push just a really crappy foreclosed home on someone. You know, I'm like, look, I know this ain't what you were looking for. But I'm gonna get you a great deal on it, all right? All right, this property here was built in 83. Only had one previous owner. She was a witch. Uh, <clears throat> if you come this way, this is the kitchen area, oftentimes referred to as the heart of any real home. As you can see, it's been completely ripped out, right? <laughs> Just kind of left as is, more room for you to play around in, make it your own, that's nice. That's nice. See, it's weird what happened here. See, the last owner moved in and went to town on trying to change everything, right? Tried to turn the house into something that it's not, and in the middle of the night, just up and moved to a bigger house that understands her. <laughs> With more of a modern Puerto Rican kind of vibe to it, so that's... It's good for her. She left a few things behind, a couple tables, a couple chairs. There's a baby in the corner. But I think it's fine. Relax, everybody. It's like they always say, one person's trash is your new family. Who said that? That's correct. There you go. You get it. That's what that is. I have sleep apnea. You guys know what that is? For those of you that don't, it's that fun sleep disorder where you die a little bit every night, you know? All right. So because of that, I have to wear a CPAP machine. All right now, a CPAP machine, if you don't know, it involves a mask, and then there's a tube, and it's plugged into a box that just forces life into your body. All right. I hate wearing it, it's very uncomfortable, it's very irritating. The one silver lining in this whole ordeal is that my wife is strangely aroused by the whole mask thing. So now we got this new kink we didn't even know about, right? We do this weird Batman versus Bane roleplay thing. I just kick open the door with some dress socks and the mask, and I'm like, is this what you wanted? Oh, it lives in the darkness. Mm. My name is Shane Brendan. Thank you very much. You guys have a good night. Shane Brendan, everybody, right here on LiveWire.
Our next guest is the best-selling author of Go the F to Sleep, and also You Have to Effing Eat, and now the third in the series, F. Now there are two of you. (laughs) He is also a novelist and the author of more than a dozen books, including his latest, A Field Guide to the Jewish People. Please welcome Adam Mansback to Livewire. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I want to talk about your uh, latest book here in a minute, but we have to start by talking a little bit about the phenomenon that was Go the Bleep to Sleep. Now, what people may not know is that you were a published author before this happened, right? (laughs) Yes, thank you for knowing that. I've been in many situations where people are like, so what did you do before you wrote this book? Notably on the Today Show. Really? Do a little research, Kathy Lee Gifford. Like, come on. <laughs> I've had that thought thousands of yeah. times just when I'm watching TV. So, so you, you were a writer, but you wrote, I believe it was a Facebook post that really took off uh, and became a kind of a pop culture phenomenon. Yeah, I did, I did write a Facebook post that said, be on the lookout for my forthcoming children's book, Go the F to Sleep. And, you know, in, in writing that Facebook post, I sort of realized that I knew exactly what that book would be. I knew that it would sort of interlace an honest interior parent's monologue with the kind of tropes of a traditional bedtime board book. Bored in, the, in both senses of the sure. word. Right. Like stiff, yeah. but also boring. Also incredibly boring. Like, I would fall asleep. My daughter would not. <laughs> Hence the book. But I sort of kept thinking about it, and later I sat down and in about 38 minutes wrote the book. <laughs> and now, what, what was that like for you? Because you were uh, already a novelist. Elena is a, is a writer as well. Like, you, you, I'm sure, sweated every word in your other books, and this thing you wrote in 38 minutes is what's, at that moment, taking off. What's that feel like as a writer? It's, uh, you know, look, I, I, I would be really kind of a schmuck to complain about having success as a writer of any kind, right? I'm very lucky that this thing caught the kind of tailwind that it did and became, you know, part of the zeitgeist. Would I prefer that it was one of my literary novels? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, would, you know, that would be nice. Um, but no, I really can't complain. And, and also, at the time that I wrote it, I didn't even think it was going to be published. And it, you know, I sent it to one publisher, my friend Johnny Temple, at a small independent house in Brooklyn. To show you how commercial they are, their motto is reverse gentrification of the literary world. Oh, yeah, sure. And Johnny and I sort of kept talking about it for a couple of months. We both sort of kept concluding that maybe we were just bad parents, you know? <laughs> but he also kept showing it to people. His wife loved it. I remember very early on, he showed it to the novelist Jonathan Lethem, who hmm. thought it was very funny. And so we sort of never dropped it, but we couldn't figure out basic things like where in a bookstore would you stock this book, <laughs> you know? And eventually, Johnny walked it into his local independent bookstore in Brooklyn, and he was like, what do, you, what do you think of this, and where would you stock it? And they were like, this is hilarious. We'd put this in the parenting section. <laughs> and Johnny called me, and he was like, guess what? There's a parenting section. <laughs> you know, confirming our early thesis yeah. that we might just be bad parents. Yeah, if that's the first, um, first time you found out about that, that might be a sign. Yeah. When did you get a sense that this had moved into the realm of, like, cultural phenomenon? Uh, April 26, 2011. Here's why. Because (laughs) the book was not supposed to be published until the following October. But that night, I gave a reading of the book at a museum in Philadelphia where I was living at the time. I wasn't living in the museum, just in Philadelphia, um, to about 200 people. And it was, like, well-received And the next morning, I thought to check the book's Amazon ranking, and the book was at 125 on Amazon. As a literary novelist, I didn't even know numbers that low existed. Right. (laughs) And by the end of the week, it was number one. And, you know, not to get overly technical, but the book did not exist. (laughs) Had not been printed, was not even, like, on the slow boat back from China, like, did not exist. 
So we frantically rushed it out to try to get it out by Father's Day of that year, which seemed appropriate somehow. Sure. Um, and the book stayed at number one throughout this entire time. And meanwhile, a PDF of the book that had leaked and it started ricocheting around the internet. So hundreds of thousands of people sort of got the whole book for free and we, were, we thought we were done, but. This is like a Wu-Tang record. Yeah. <laughs> More than like a book for parents about how annoying their kids are at times. Yeah, 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 totally. So that's where it started. Um, we're talking to Adam Mansbach. Uh, his latest book is A Field Guide to the Jewish People. Uh, you wrote this book along with Dave Barry and Alan Zweibel. How did the idea for this book get started between the three of you? Well, Dave and Alan and I, actually, this is our second book together. This is the follow-up to the hit parody Haggadah that we wrote. <laughs> yes. <laughs> A couple of years ago called For This We Left Egypt. Right. Um, <laughs> I have, uh, you know, I met, I met Alan four or five years ago at a book festival, the Tucson Book Festival, um, and he and I ended up having dinner. Someone had just, he had just had a grandkid, and someone had sent him the video of Sam Jackson reading Go the F to Sleep. Right. So we ended up hanging out and having dinner. Alan had previously written a book with Dave Barry. Dave Barry was my childhood comedy hero. Oh, my God. Um, I ripped off a Dave Barry column and tried to pass it off as my original humor column in the student newspaper at North Seattle Christian High School. The editor of the paper was like a 43-year-old dad type who yeah. was in the, ex like in the bag for Dave Barry. He immediately identified it as a Dave Barry. I ripped off hundreds of Dave Barry jokes in my high school newspaper. Oh my God, we're kindred yeah. spirits. Yeah, my, you know, my father uh, recently retired. He was an editor at the Boston Globe. And before Dave was in the Boston Globe, as a syndicated columnist, my father would print out his columns off the wire and bring them home for us to read. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, you know, so, so obviously getting to work with him was incredibly disappointing. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I wish that I had met him and Alan both back when they were f a little funnier, frankly, you know? <laughs> I really had to do the bulk of the heavy lifting with this book. It comes through. Uh, there's, a, there's a chapter in the book titled The First Jewish Comedian, which sort of tries to tackle the questions, why do we associate Jews with being funny so much? What did you guys arrive at? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I've spent a, a good amount of time now trying to kind of parse and figure out what Jewish humor is, right? Is it any joke told by a Jewish person? Is there some essential quality to Jewish humor that you know, we can describe and elaborate on. And I think it's sort of like pornography, like you know it when you hear it, you know? <laughs> I mean, I can tell you what I consider the most Jewish joke. Okay. All right, this is the most Jewish joke I know, and it's divisive. Not everybody, not all Jews like it. Shocking, I know, because yeah. Jews tend to agree on everything That's else. my experience. Um, so here's the joke. This Jewish guy moves in next door to Rockefeller, and he buys the same car. He hires the same gardener to do the shrubbery. And one day... Rockefeller walks out of his house and he sees this guy and he looks over and he says, hey, you think you're as good as me, don't you? And the Jewish guy looks over, he's like, as good as you? I think I'm better than you. Rockefeller is furious, demands to know why. The guy shrugs, he's like, for one thing, I don't live next door to a Jew. <laughs> I love that joke because I think the way it redirects the anti-Semitism toward the anti-Semite is brilliant. My mother doesn't agree. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's a actually an interesting way into my next question. It's, there's so much anti-Semitism in this world, and so much of it has to do with stereotypes and things like that. And here you are writing this book that's really funny. It's also pretty informative. How do you keep it on the, for the radio listeners, uh, Adam is uh, doing a kind of medium minus hand signal on how informative the book is. How do you write a book like this and make it funny but not play into tropes or stereotypes or things that anti-Semites are using to be anti-Semitic? I think that our approach was to kind of tackle some of those stereotypes head on, right? I mean, you're not going to write a book that purports to be about the history and culture of the Jews without talking about anti-Semitism, without talking about stereotypes. So our approach was kind of to play with those things. For example, in the back section of the book, you will find a quiz that you can take to find out whether you are an anti-Semite. And no matter what you answer, the answer is essentially yes, right? Like, do you, you, know, do you believe that the Jews control Hollywood? If you say yes, you're an anti-Semite. 
If you say no, you're undervaluing the immense contributions that Jews <laughs> made. How dare you? So. Now, Dave Barry, who helped write this book, is decidedly not a Jew. What, like, what's his role in this? Uh, Dave's wife is Jewish. Dave, you know, in, in honesty, Dave attends far more synagogue than I do. I mean, anybody who's been to synagogue one day in the last 15 years has attended more than I have, to be honest. But Dave's wife is Jewish. His daughter had a bat mitzvah. Dave, uh, Dave was the, um, the sendak at his grandson's bris. That's Ooh. the guy holding the baby while the moil does the snipping. Um, so Dave is, in many ways, much more qualified to write this book than I am. <laughs> Where does my experience as a part-time Shabbos Goy rank me on the list of things? When I lived in Los Angeles... Also higher than me. I had neighbors, I had neighbors who were Orthodox Jews, and uh, you know, I would sometimes have to come over and turn something on because it was a, it was a, a day where they weren't able to activate technology. Um, you write about a, a film pitch starring a Shabbos Goy in this book. Yeah, I think there's a great action movie to be made called Shabbos Goy, and the general idea is we're in, like, we're in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, like, you know, a, a, an ultra-Orthodox sect of Jews. Pick one. Um, you know, you can't, you can't turn on a light during the Sabbath. You can't do any work. You can't drive a car. So here's what happens. Robbers break into the Grand Rebbe's house where they keep all the files, 30 years worth of records. These people don't use computers, so like everything's in file cabinets, sensitive information. They cut the lights off. Nobody can turn the lights back on. <laughs> Infrared goggles. They grab all the files. They escape in a car. Nobody can chase them except Shabbos the Goy. Shabbos Goy. Yeah. I can see Ryan Gosling playing that. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me you couldn't sell that in a room. Yeah. You just sold it right here. Uh, we need to take a quick break. We're talking to Adam. Man's back. This is Livewire Radio. Stay with us. Hey, special thanks this episode to Darlene Ireland of Portland, Oregon. Darlene is part of the Livewire member community and generously supports us with a donation each month. We are so thankful for her support because it is genuinely what allows us to keep this show going. So a huge thanks this week to Darlene Ireland. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We're in Portland talking to writer Adam Mansbach. His latest book is A Field Guide to the Jewish People. Adam, we like to try to get to know our uh, guests on a, on a very real level here on Livewire. And I feel like that's it's already happened in talking to you. But I think we Absolutely. can take it maybe to an even deeper level. To that end, we have an exercise here. Uh, on the table in front of me is an actual physical jar. It's got five questions in it, the essential five questions of our time. We call this the jar of truth. Passover, there's only four questions. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the idea is that we'll have you draw a question out at random. Our announcer, Elena Passarello, will read the question, and then, Adam, we want your honest Answer Now, because you're well-known also for your Go the F to Sleep book series, these are questions about parenting. This is the parenting-related jar of truth. But it's not, it's not, a, uh, it's not a swear jar. No, no it's a, <laughs> you would have filled it up long ago with your books. <laughs> okay, here's the question. Are you okay with your babysitter eating food out of your refrigerator? Listen. <laughs> I have three children. I have an 11-year-old. The book is, the new book, yes. F, Now There Are Two of You, is an understatement. Yes. I actually have three. I have an 11-year-old, <laughs> a two-and-a-half-year-old, and a 10-month-old. If you're babysitting for me, you can eat whatever you want. <laughs> you can take whatever you want at the end of the night. You can go home with any object I own. As Inclu as including come, the children? You can take two if you want. <laughs> As long as you come and hang out in my house and do not harm these babies and allow me and my partner to go out and have a civilized dinner with each other and not talk about children or anything child-related, I might sign the deed to the house over to you. At the wow. <laughs> Very liberal policy. Okay, next question for Adam Mansback. Okay, uh, Adam, if you have multiple kids, which you do, is it okay to secretly have a favorite one? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, look, all kids are not the same. You're not going to have the same relationship with them. Personally, 
I only begin to really, truly bond deeply with my children once they are old enough to make me laugh. Like, my two-and-a-half-year-old is hilarious. My 11-year-old is one of the funniest people I know. My 10-month-old, not so much. So, like, she's cool. We're cool. Right. As soon as she makes a joke, it's a whole other ball game. But right now, the rankings definitely go, yeah. like, oldest to youngest. Because my oldest daughter, first of all, poops in a toilet. 100% yeah. of the time. Huge. Huge upside so to like, that kid. You know, and if you want to even like, begin to try to take her crown, you got to do all your pooping in the toilet. Right. Yeah. Well, you know what they'd say, watch the throne. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm subtweeting my two and a half year old yeah. right now. Like, yeah. I hope you're listening, Xander. Well, that's okay. Let me ask you about that a little bit because the, the books, the, the Go the F to Sleep books and the other ones, the, the new one, by the way, is F, Now There Are Two of You, which as we've learned is an understatement. Uh, these books are so funny, and I think they're so popular because parents can completely relate to the sentiment. Also, your kids live in the world, and I assume your 11-year-old has some sense of this book, and your other ones will learn about it. How did those conversations go? How do you explain to them that you, that you really do love them, even <laughs> though you write about how on your, la on your last nerve they are? Yeah. Well, the conversation with Vivian, my 11-year-old, when Go the F to Sleep came out, was basically like, homie. You know how we live in a house and not a discarded refrigerator carton? This book is the reason why. Yeah. Straight talk from a qualified parent. Adam Mansback, the latest book is a field guide to the Jewish people. Our musical guest this hour is from right here in Portland, Oregon. She's a three-time winner of the Muddy Award for Best Female Vocalist, and she directs the Portland Interfaith Gospel Choir. We are so excited to have her here. Please welcome LaRonda Steele to Livewire. Birds flying high you know how I feel Sun in the sky You know how I feel Breeze drifting on by You know how I feel it's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me, yes. And I'm feeling good, yeah. Oh, I'm feeling good, y'all, yes I am. Fish in the sea. The sweet scent of the pine You know how 
church for a minute, y'all. Let me hear you say, yeah. Are you feeling? Can you feel it? Somebody say, yeah, for life, why are y'all? We are feeling good. Thank you so much. That's going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Dina Nyeri, Adam Mansback, Shane Brendan, and LaRonda Steele. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketing manager. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake and Jay Bozich. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks so much to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Angela Pond of Camas, Washington, and Jill Nylon of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of LiveWire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.